Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Revelation chapter 12, and how many of you have kind of gotten used to the oddness of at Christmas time looking at Revelation? Uh, it's kind of an odd thing to do. We've, we've, we've looked at this now, this is our third week, and instead of trying to understand all of the like symbolism and understand all of the ins and outs and the, the details that scholars and uh, uh, prophecy buffs have tried to argue over for centuries and, and things. We're looking at the picture of Jesus, the pictures that were given of Jesus Christ after his second coming or after his return. Because at Christmas we celebrate the first advent or the first coming of Jesus Christ and it's beautiful, but to fully understand the power of that, we have to understand the power and the magnificence of Jesus in his second advent when he returns in glory, right? Because that baby in the manger, if we just leave Jesus as this baby in the manger, we miss a lot of the power of who he is and what he actually came to do. Because make no mistake about it, Jesus came to conquer uh, when people ask, why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus came, yes, to redeem us. Jesus came to be a sacrifice for our sin. He came so that we could have eternal life. But all of that speaks to this, that Jesus came to conquer sin and death and the devil and Satan and the forces of all the kingdom of hell. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. And uh, the truth is, the truth is that there is actually a nativity scene in Revelation. Uh, when you think about Christmas, we think about uh, the holly and the branches, and it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, and I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, and then when we get spiritual about it, we start thinking about the Christmas star, and the angels, and the wise men, and the nativity scene, and whether your nativity scene should have a wise man in it, because it didn't come until later on, right? Talked about this before. If you really want to get accurate, uh, your nativity scene, the wise men should be somewhere out in the yard somewhere the night that Jesus was born, because they didn't, they, didn't they didn't start traveling until the night he was born. But anyway... There's this uncommon character, this uncommon figure that is never in any of the nativity scenes that we buy. Doesn't matter if it's a precious moments nativity scene. I know when the girls were growing up several years ago, we had a Veggie Tales nativity scene. Doesn't matter if it's a Little Tykes nativity scene or those Weeble Wobbles, but they don't fall down nativity scene. It doesn't matter what kind of nativity place that you have. This figure that we're going to talk about that we see in the nativity of Revelation is not in any of them. Because what we're going to see is there is a dragon in the nativity scene that we see in Revelation. The Revelation nativity scene is a lot darker. It's a lot more intense. It's a lot less peaceful than the nativity scene that we're used to seeing. As you drive around at night and you see the lights throughout our city, some people have put those inflatable nativity scenes up, you know, uh, with all the yard art and stuff. And it's like, man, I, I can't get into doing that yet, but I'm, I'm eventually probably going to turn into one of those guys that do that. But just because this nativity that we're going to look at this morning is different than what we're used to at Christmas time and what we're used to thinking about when we see the nativity, it doesn't mean that it's any less true. Matter of fact, I would argue that it's a more true nativity scene, a more true accurate representation of the nativity or the birth of Christ than what we've been given a glimpse of in this world. Because if you remember, when we look back uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, revelation means the unveiling or the revealing. It's a peek behind the curtain of the physical into the spiritual realm. 
And what we have to understand and what we must never forget is that while we live in this physical, temporal world of flesh and bone, behind the curtain that we can't see is the very real spiritual life that is taking place as well. That we are in the presence of angels and demons at all times. We are in the presence of God and we are in the presence of all the forces of Satan as well. Matter of fact, if we could peek behind that veil, we'd probably be scared to death at what we see. And this is why Revelation, the book of Revelation scares, scares people to death. They don't like to get into it a whole lot of times. But in this nativity that we're going to look at this morning, it's not your typical scene. We don't see a manger. We don't see wise men. But we do see a couple of normal and, and, and figures that we are used to. We see a pregnant woman. We're going to see a baby that is born. But then we're also going to see a seven-headed blood-red dragon all right, that is, that's not the one that we read, to, we read to the kids at night when we're putting them to bed, right? Um, and he's got 10 horns on his, on his head and, and, and all of this stuff. So let's look together at this nativity scene, beginning in Revelation chapter 12, verse number one. We're going to look at the entire chapter uh, together, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and it says this, a great sign appeared in heaven. So all of a sudden we know this, that this is not actually taking place in the physical realm, okay? This is a vision that John is getting, right? And he says, a great sign appeared in heaven and a woman that was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And there was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and, seven, and ten horns. And on its heads were seven crowns and its tail swept away a third, a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. And so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. And then it says this, it says, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out and the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to the earth and his angels with them. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you with great fury. Because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had, given, who had given birth to the male child. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she had nourished for a time and a times and a time and a half. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river and the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. And the dragon stood on the stand of the sea. 
Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you would be glorified in this message. Lord, what we see in this passage is something that is interesting because it covers not only a time that is to come in the future, but it covers a time that has taken place in the past, but it also covers the time that is right now as well. Lord, it is difficult sometimes to understand exactly what is being said here, but what we do see is a beautiful picture of you, Lord Jesus, who has come and who will rule the nations and who sits enthroned on high right now and one who is eternally and always victorious over the enemy. So Lord, we praise you this morning and we worship you and we ask Holy Spirit that you would guide us in truth today and that you would show us from your word what it is you want us to know. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, isn't that a fun story? Isn't that a fun Christmas story? I mean, can't you just picture, you know, uh, you know, Uncle, Uncle Robbie just sitting around with the kids on Christmas Eve and say, kids, j- just gather around. I want to read you the Christmas story, right? This is not the Christmas story that we're familiar with, right? I mean, it's got all kinds of stuff. It seems more like a fantasy, like the beginning to the world, world of Warcraft or some video game that you might, or some fantasy movie that you might go and see in the theaters, Right? I think we can all agree it's not our typical story. You know, where are the shepherds? Where are the wise men? Where's the cute little animals in the barn and the manger? It's not the peaceful picture that Linus gives us when he quotes the Christmas story to Charlie Brown and his friends in Charlie Brown's Christmas. But it is the story of Jesus' birth all the same. (laughs) Remember what we see in the book of Revelation is all based on visions that God gives to John while he's in exile in Patmos. They are visions that Jesus said are visions of what it says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 of what soon must take place. So what we see in the book of Revelation are these visions that Jesus is giving to John and he wants, them, he wants him to pin them down and try to describe them to us. And what, what John is seeing is beyond the veil into the spiritual realm and he's trying to make sense of it all and write it in a way that we can read it and understand it. But man, it's difficult to get, isn't it? And in chapter 12, John is given this kind of a, it's kind of a strange thing to understand, but he gives him a flashback vision back to the birth of Jesus, but it looks way different than what he remembered the story being about. Because this flashback of Christ's birth is also a peek behind the veil into the spiritual realm. It's not just a flashback, but it's a flash forward into what's going to take place. And it's also a flashback beyond the birth of Christ. Because this passage is not only tells us the birth of Christ, but it covers the expanse of time, past, present, and future. Remember a few weeks ago when we learned that that word revelation means unveiling or uncovering. We see this unveiled look at what was taking place on a spiritual level when Christ was born in Bethlehem. We also see what took place over time and in history as well. See, when we sing the songs of the angels to the shepherds, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, while all of that was taking place in the physical realm, there was a real war, epic struggle that was taking place between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell. It's a struggle that has been taking place ever since the fall of man. And church, it's a struggle that will continue to take place until God says enough is enough. And the beautiful thing is, that's when it ends. God's one day going to say, enough is enough. And he's going to end it. He's going to end the struggle. And what we must learn from that church is, we want to be on that side. We want to be on the side that says, enough is enough. And only through Jesus Christ can we be on that side. See, there's these two eternal kingdoms that are locked in this epic struggle, this battle over the souls of you and me and over the souls of our ancestors and over the souls of those who will come after us as well. Heaven and hell are locked in this battle 
over the souls of men and over the glory of God to be put on display here on earth. But you see, the passage goes beyond just the moment of Christ's birth. It spans, like I said, through history. So as we look at this, at this strange nativity scene, we're going to get a grand view of Christ's birth, but also a view of Israel's history, of the Old Testament leading up to Christ's birth, and also a view of what takes place in the church age. And also we're going to see what's going to take place in the future too. And I don't want to get bogged down in all of the details. And I know there's some of you here who might be prophecy buffs that after service, you're going to be like, but what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What I want to do is keep our eyes focused on the image and the picture of Jesus and what it says God is going to do in his kingdom. So this morning, let's, let's, let's kind of dive in this. So the first thing we have to do is kind of understand this scene a little bit. Because how many of you are kind of still scratching your head at like, okay, what did we just read? Right? What did, we, what did we just look at? So let's understand the scene a little bit. Like I said, there's some familiar characters in this scene compared to the nativity scene that we're used to out of the book of Luke and out of the rest of the Gospels. So let's start with the easiest one to figure out, and that is the baby. There's this baby that is mentioned in this passage, and no doubt we have to understand that this baby is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse number five, the word son there in your Bible should be capitalized. It should be capital S-O-N. And what that indicates is that, that we're talking about someone who not only is a son, but someone who is named the son. And one of the sons, one of the names of Jesus Christ is he is the son of God. He is the son of man. And he is the son that sets us free. So it is speaking of Jesus Christ. But it also says in verse number five that the son is one who will rule all the nations of the earth with an iron rod. And this is a tied all the way back to the Old Testament prophecies. Especially that prophecy in Isaiah chapter nine that says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. You see, the messianic prophecies was that the Messiah would come to establish the eternal kingdom of God. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to conquer and to be that conquering king. And he would establish his eternal kingdom. And his justice and his reign and his rule and his authority and his power would know no limits. There would be no kingdom or empire on earth that could rise up against this kingdom. And church, that is the status of the kingdom of God today. Even though it doesn't look like it, the kingdom of God stands undefeated Amen. and untouched. But this is referring to the baby. So the baby is pretty easy to identify in this passage. But then we also see a pregnant woman. And we think of the pregnant woman, it gets a little bit more tricky to understand exactly what's being said here. At initial glance, you'd think that this is talking about Mary, the one who carried and gave birth to Jesus and that's easily explained and understood. And we have to understand that Revelation is a peek behind the curtain. It's a peek behind the veil to understand that what we see here is speaking of something a little bit further, a little bit deeper. You see, in verse number one of our text, the Bible says this. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. When we see that word sign, the word sign is used in scripture. It's referring to, it, it's telling us to kind of move our, our minds from the literal to the metaphorical to a symbolic understanding. And so what he's saying, this great symbol or this great metaphor appeared in heaven, meaning I see this pregnant woman, but this pregnant woman is more than just a woman. It's, it's symbolizing something else. And so this woman isn't described as a lowly girl from Nazareth, but it's one who is bright as the sun and the moon are her feet and, and all of this stuff. And she has a crown of 12 stars. 
And those are all very significant things to kind of tell us who she is because these 12 stars refer to the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And when it says that she had a face like the sun and her feet were like the moon, it means that she was basically covering the expanse of what they knew of the heavens and astronomy in those days. And it meant that she was covering the entire expanse of the skies and the stars of heaven. And it tells us that this, it, go, it harkens back to what Jesus, or what God had told Abraham when he made his covenant, that I will make out of you a great nation and their descendants and the ancestors will number, outnumber the stars. So what we see here is what we have to understand is this woman is the nation of Israel, is the people of God. It's God's chosen people. And when it says that she is pregnant and that she is in labor, what it is saying is that she is about to give birth to Jesus Christ. And folks, Israel is who gave us Jesus. You see, what we see a lot of times in our nativities is we see, we see white, blonde-haired baby Jesus. Jesus was not white, blonde-haired baby Jesus. He is the king of the Jews. And he was born of Jewish ancestry. And that is important because the Messiah could only be born as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so what we see here is more than just the birth of Christ. We see that this cosmic battle has been raging for centuries and that, that Satan has always been trying to come at Israel to stop the Messiah from coming from the line. And then we see this other player here in the narrative, and it's this red dragon. That's the one that we don't normally see in the nativity. A dragon has seven heads, and each has a crown, and it has ten horns. This isn't a cute little fairy tale dragon, right? Later on in the text, in verses 8 and 9, we're told that the dragon is the ancient serpent who deceives the whole world. Takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. The serpent who was in the garden who deceived Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. And he continues to deceive us. By the way, that is the way that Satan likes to operate. He doesn't operate in full on no holds barred attacks. He just deceives us away from God. He says, I don't have to defeat you. All I have to do is distract you from Christ. And from the truth. But this red dragon is also called later on in our text, the accuser of the brethren. So what we're looking here is a symbolic narrative that not only paints a picture of what took place the night that Jesus born, but it also paints a picture of history from the moment that God made the covenant with, Adam, uh, with, with Abraham all the way up. And we're going to see it expand all the way past into the church age as well. It's a whole picture of God's history. And Satan's history with Israel and Jesus and the church. And church, that means also with us. And like I said, this chapter is deep and it's multifaceted. So what we're going to do today is just apply to how this passage tells us everything that hinges on Jesus. This is what we're going to look at today is what hinges on Christ. That a baby in a manger changes everything. That when Jesus was born, it changed everything. And it set everything right. And one day it's going to be set right forever and always. And that when Jesus was born, it was a blow to the kingdom of hell. When Jesus returns, it's going to be that, 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 that knockout punch. So let's consider a couple of things as we look at this. And what we learn from this passage is number one, we must accept. And we must understand the reality of these two eternal kingdoms. And when I say that, what I mean is we often don't think enough about the spiritual. We don't often think enough about the eternal. We don't think about what's going on behind the veil that we can't see right now. But it doesn't mean that it's not taking place. 
Paul told us in the epistles that there is spiritual warfare that is waging around us at all times. He said, and he said this, he says, we don't wage war against people and against principalities, uh, against, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and people in high places and low places, meaning that all of the things that we see, the struggle, the evil, the wickedness that we see is satanically driven. So that when we look at someone and we think, man, that person is so wicked and so evil, it's because they have given, they have given place to the power of the evil of Satan. That we become instruments of that. Verse 7 tells us this, describing this struggle between Satan and the people of God that spans all of history and all of time. It says that war broke out in heaven between the dragon and his angels and Michael and the angels of God. So when you look at this, it's easy to kind of put that in the fantasy category of your mind. Like, this is something that happens in movies and in paperback books that I can pick up, right? But no, this is real. Matter of fact, I want to I I present to you that it's more real than what we're living right now because it's eternal and will continue forever. And we're going to be ushered into that realm when we die. We're going to spend more time in this eternal realm than we spend now in this temporal realm. And so this is important. These kingdoms are real. We must never lose sight of the fact that there is a real heaven and there is a real hell, church. Never lose fact of that. They are very real kingdoms and the power of those kingdoms far outweigh the power of any kingdom that we can contrive here on earth. All throughout history, Think of any empire you can think of. The Egyptian empire, the Roman empire, the British empire, the power of of the United States. All of those powers fall. They rise and they fall. But only the kingdom of God will reign supreme. But through all of those kingdoms rising and falling, there have been two kingdoms in the middle of all that. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell that have been waging war with one another. And these kingdoms are real. These kingdoms are eternal. Eternity is something that is impossible for us to comprehend. I can begin to think about eternity, but eventually, somewhere along the way, my mind is just going to go, I can't fathom it anymore. Because everything we know, everything we can think about is temporal, right? We, we, we can't understand something that has always existed and always will like our God. That's why we have to take him by faith. We can't fathom things like, like chapter 12 that is like a timeline that is an event, but at the same time is symbolic of events that have happened and are happening and are, are to come. It's just like, it's too much to take in sometimes. So we put it over here in this little realm of, the, of, 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 the, of fantasy, but it's not fantasy, it's real. And we have to deal with it. Jesus really died so that we could be set free from sin. He really died so that we could go to a real heaven. And Satan really exists to try to keep people out of that heaven. There's an enemy out to destroy the testimony of Jesus and keep people away from faith in him. And we must accept that there are two eternal kingdoms. And every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever lived and ever will live will spend eternity in one of those two kingdoms. There is no third option. There is no option to say, you know what, I'll just, you know, I'll just turn to dust here and and I'll just enjoy the life I have. No, that's not how it goes. We get a little infinitesimal speck of time right here in the here and now. And the rest of it is eternity in heaven or hell. These kingdoms are real. They are eternal. And these kingdoms are very different from one another. These kingdoms couldn't be any different. The kingdom of heaven, the Bible tells us, is one that is ruled and reigned by God Almighty. It's a kingdom of light. 
It's a kingdom where everything is exposed and the son, of, the son of God is the light of heaven. It's the kingdom of life. It's the kingdom of righteousness, of good, and of peace. It's the kingdom of everlasting hope. It's the kingdom where we are loved forever and perfectly by our eternal God. But then there's the kingdom of hell and it's everything that heaven is not. It's ruled by Satan, the deceiver, the adversary of God. It's the kingdom of darkness. The Bible speaks of hell as being this place of outer darkness and utter darkness where the only thing you hear are the sounds of suffering and torment. It's a place that is ruled by fear. It's a place that is ruled by wickedness and evil and sorrow and hatred and death. The two kingdoms couldn't be any more different, church. And these two kingdoms are eternally at war. They've been struggling for all of history over the souls of mankind and over humanity. And this chapter is really about describing the struggle between Satan and the people of God that spans all of history. And when verse number seven says that war broke out in heaven between the dragon and his angels, it's easy to just put that in that fantasy category, but we can't do that because it's real. And we must never make light of this fact that the kingdom of God is real and the kingdom of hell is real. And that number two, the thing that we have to understand is the kingdom of Satan is powerful. Well, many of you may be sitting here and you say, but, but pastor, I've read the book. The kingdom of Satan can't win. I get that, but it doesn't mean it's not powerful. The kingdom of Satan cannot conquer the kingdom of God, but it doesn't mean that it cannot conquer us without God. He is not a foe to be taken lightly, although he loves it when we do. Satan loves it when we have these little depictions of, of Satan as this little guy who runs around with a pointy tail and a pitchfork and he's just trying to do like little things that annoy us or get us to do little you know, mischievous things. That's not what Satan's trying to do. Satan could care less what we do as long as we don't look to Jesus. He wants us enveloped in sin and the wickedness and, and all those things that will just, just, in, in, just, just continue to pile on us to bury us in hopelessness and despair and unbelief of God. Satan's power is alive and well here on earth. And here's how we see this. Our text tells us that while God operates in heaven and on earth, Satan does exactly the same thing. Satan operates in a spiritual realm, but he also operates in the physical realm. Verses 7 through 9 says that Satan tries to wage war in heaven with God, but that he couldn't win the battle. By the way, church, he'll never win a battle in heaven. Never has, never will. And so he and a third of the angels who followed him were thrown down to earth where he has been at work deceiving humanity against God. See, he knows he can't beat God. He knows he can't defeat God. He knows he can't stop God, but what he's going to try to do is keep humanity away from God. And the way the Bible describes the dragon is that he has seven heads with these crowns and ten horns. And to us as Gentiles, we look at that and we're like, okay, that's, that's, that's really weird. It's a seven-headed dragon. But to a Jewish reader, they understand that the number seven and the number ten are numbers of completion in their culture. So the symbolism of the dragon here, of the crowns and the heads, means that he has control over all the kingdoms of the earth. And what we have to understand now is we live in this temporal area. God rules and reigns in heaven. He has sovereignty over everything, but he has allowed Satan to have temporal power here on earth. And the reason that he does that is because he wants Satan to see that no matter what he tries, he's always going to lose. That only, that only things that he can ever have are temporary because God has allowed him to have it. See, Satan's power is alive and well here on earth, church, and it's greater than our own, and it is set against us. Satan's power is greater than our own, and Satan's power is set against us. 
We have to understand that Satan's power is above our own. It's, 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 it's nothing that we can stand up to on our own. And he's going to use that power to destroy us and to destroy the testimony of Christ in us, church. You say, well, I'm saved. I don't have to worry about being destroyed by Satan. No, but he can destroy the testimony of Christ in us. And by doing so, cause other people to look at Christ and say, man, it's worth nothing. And then he has those lost folks and keeps them lost. See, his first goal in us is to keep us from Christ. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But we see so many examples of what Satan does and is doing and will continue to do to God's people in our text. Verse number nine says that he deceives the whole world. That's what he wants to do. He wants to deceive us into believing that God is not who he says he is. And church, he does that to us too. How many times have we doubted God's power? How many times have we looked at it when it looked like there was more month than money and we thought, man, God, I don't know what you're going to do. And we can't trust that he does. And so what we do is we begin to kind of break away from God and we begin to do things on our own. When we look at God's ways and we say, you know what, the world looks a whole lot different and they operate in a different way. So maybe your truth needs to be revised. See, Satan loves to deceive us into thinking that God, number one, doesn't mean what he says, that God can't do what he promised, and then get us to think that God's not powerful enough. The other thing he tries to deceive us in church is to think that he's winning, and he's won, and God's out for the count. But let me tell you this, he's not out for the count. He accuses, in verse number 10, he says, he accuses the brothers and sisters day and night. That means if you're part of the kingdom of God, he may not be able to take you to hell, but he can try to make your life a living hell while you live it here on earth. Constantly reminding you of sin. God has already forgotten in his forgiveness. Constantly reminding you of where you fall short. Constantly reminding of where you've been and who you've been with and that God, would be, God is ashamed of you. Pressing your soul down to where you're ineffective in your witness. Verse 12 says, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down in a great fury. And we have to understand that Satan has no love lost for humanity. He has not an ounce of love for us. Not an ounce of respect for us either. He has one design and his one design is to steal, to kill, and to destroy us. That's his design. And in verse number 17 says that the dragon, when he was furious with the woman, he went off to wage war with the rest of her offspring. You know who that is? The rest of the woman's of Israel's offspring are the Gentiles. We talked about them in the book of Romans. He's waging war against the church today. And we can make light of it. And we play right into his hand today. Because how many times do we, how many times do we shy away from using the word sin and the word hell in our pulpits today? How many times do we shy away from using verbiage like this that Satan is evil and he is behind the wickedness in the world? He loves it when we're just focused on other things. He loves it when we make light of the spiritual warfare that's going on behind the veil that we can't see. And we focus only on the things that we can see. See, this is a war that we can't win on our own church. We have to have our victorious warrior fighting in our stead, Jesus Christ. This is why last Sunday when we looked at Revelation chapter 3 in the church at Laodicea and the worst place that Jesus can be in his church is on the outside looking in, knocking, saying, will you please let me back in? Because if Jesus isn't in the church, then as, as Satan works his warfare on us, we are sitting ducks. It's a very real kingdom that has very real power. See, he doesn't play fair. 
He doesn't play fair. He deceives, he manipulates, he schemes, and he's also armed with flaming darts and arrows. And on top of that, he hosts, he commands a whole host of demons. One third of the angelic forces of heaven have followed him. Folks, we don't stand a chance on our own. His kingdom is powerful. Say, man, this is a wonderful Christmas message, Pastor. I'm really glad I came to church for this. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's turn the page to the, to the good stuff. While Satan's, Satan's kingdom may be powerful, the kingdom of God reigns victorious over everything. Amen. The kingdom of God reigns victorious over it all. No matter how powerful, no matter how dark, no matter how twisted or fearful the kingdom of Satan can be here on earth, that's the extent of his power. It's here on earth. That's his power over us. But you see, God rules and reigns over heaven and earth. And God also rules and reigns over hell. See, God created it and he banished Satan to hell. And one day he's going to be there and he won't ever be able to get out. You see, that's the extent of his power. He knows that his power is limited. He knows that his power can't stand in the presence of God at the power of the kingdom of God. Did you realize back in the book of Job... That before Satan began to tempt and began, before he began to wreak all this havoc in Job's life, what did he have to do? He had to go and get permission from God to do it. <laughs> Satan's power is so limited when it comes to God. Satan's power cannot stand in the presence of the power of the kingdom of God, but it doesn't stop him from continually trying. You ever heard the old, uh, the old adage from, uh, I think it was, was Einstein? Was it Einstein who said, or Edison who said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? That's the definition of what Satan is continually doing in his fighting against the kingdom of God. Satan will never stop attempting to undermine God. He will never stop. A kid asked his dad one time at family devotions, and this is one of the greatest answers I've ever heard. His child, five years old, in all his wisdom said, hey dad, uh, do you think that God would ever forgive Satan? <laughs> I'm like, whoa, now that's, you say that God is, Jesus is all about forgiveness and everything. But his dad responded with one of the greatest answers I think you could give. He's like, yeah, but Satan has to ask and he's never going to. Satan is always bent against God and always will be bent against God. Verse number four tells us this, that the dragon stood in front of the woman as she gave birth so that he could snatch, up, snatch him up and devour the child again. What a beautiful Christmas story. Waiting to eat this baby as it comes out of his mother. Why did he want to do that? Because Satan wants to be the king. He always has been. The reason he was kicked out as, as, as an angel in heaven was because he said, I will be like the most high. I will be God. He can't stand anyone rising above him. And he knows that Jesus sits enthroned above him right now. And it's driving him crazy. Satan wants to be the king. And if he can devour the prince of peace, there will be no establishment of God's kingdom. But what happened according to our text? What took place? Verse number five says that after the child was born, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So the dragon failed at his plan and the son of the king took his place on the throne. Now what happens right there is all 33 years of Jesus's ministry right there in that little phrase that he was taken up in his throne. It's Jesus's life, ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection and then his ascension into heaven. All the attempts that Satan made to try to derail Jesus and what he was doing, they all fell flat on their face. The dragon failed at his plan and the son of the king took his place on the throne. And then what happens after that? 
It says he goes up to heaven to wage war where he's defeated again. So I get this idea that, that he's gone up to heaven to try to rip Jesus off of his throne. And that's what he's doing in our lives every day, church. Every day as we are told to enthrone Christ and follow him. When he tempts us, when he deceives us, when he manipulates us, he comes and he says, I want to rip Christ off the throne of your life and I want to sit on that throne. And this is that cosmic battle that's constantly taking place in our hearts and in our souls, in our lives as well. But then he's thrown down to earth where he begins to fight this PR war against among humanity, wanting to make God look like the lie and him look like the truth. Waging war on those who follow him, waging deception on those who remain in their lostness. And the thing, the beautiful thing about this is that we see is throughout history, every attempt that Satan makes to destroy the son fails. Every single one. <clears throat> this scene in Revelation is just one climactic scene. But throughout history and the story woven through scripture, we see that God tells us that the dragon has tried to stand in the way of God's safe delivery of his son. It wasn't just at the moment of Christ's birth where Satan was trying to stop it. He's been trying to stop it ever since the covenant was made with Abraham. And as you go back and you look at, at history and you see this begin to kind of unfold, as I was studying this week and preparing, I'm like, oh my goodness, I had never seen some of this stuff before. I love what Warren Wearsby says here. Throughout the Old Testament history, Satan tried to prevent the birth of the Redeemer. There was always a dragon that was standing by that Satan had infused, waiting and trying to destroy Israel, the ancestors of the Messiah. See, before he just tried to destroy the baby, he wanted to destroy the woman. But God kept protecting Israel. God kept protecting the line of the Messiah. Remember... Israel was, has always been pregnant with Jesus. Israel, because of the covenant, has always been that nation that would provide the Messiah. So what does Satan want to do? If I could wipe out the nation, I wipe out the Messiah. And we see so many times throughout history, Pharaoh, actually in the book of Ezekiel, is called a dragon. Remember what Pharaoh did? Pharaoh tried to imprison God's people and keep them as slaves. And he wanted to wipe them out when they went to go off into the wilderness after they finally got their freedom. He wanted to wipe all of them out. But what happened? God wiped him out. But he was that dragon that came to wipe out that woman. Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah is also called a dragon. I had never picked up on this correlation until studying this this week. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Nebuchadnezzar imprisoned and kept him captive his people as well. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do? Say, he said, if, if, if they will not bow down to me, they will die. Nebuchadnezzar was set on genocide and wiping out the Jewish people that would have wiped out the Jewish line that would bring us Jesus. But what happened? God showed Nebuchadnezzar that you cannot wipe him out. And the Bible says that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there in the fiery furnace and God is displaying his power, he says there's a fourth one in there with them and it looks like the son of God. You can't make this stuff up. At one critical point in Israel's history, if you study their lineage and their timeline, the royal line of David, which the Bible says that the son of God would come through the line of David, the royal ancestry line, the bloodline of David had diminished all the way down to one little boy. His name was Joash. The Bible says that as David's, as David's ancestors were being conquered, that the new king that was coming in to hijack everything had wanted to wipe out all of David's line, which is what they would do in those times to take over the throne. 
The Bible says that one woman takes this little boy named Joash and hides him in a box and hides him from them. And Joash is raised and he still keeps, line, keeps a claim to the line. It had reduced all the way down to one little baby. If that baby had been wiped out, the messianic prophecies are all wrong. What did God do? He protected Joash and from that line, we still have Jesus Christ. When Christ was born, we know this story. Satan used King Herod to try to destroy him in Matthew chapter 2. After the wise men showed up to worship Jesus, what did he say? Let me go worship him too. But what he did was he, he issued an edict that all Jewish sons under the age of two and a half years old would to be thrown into the river and killed. But what had God done by that time? He had sent a message to Joseph saying, get him down to Egypt and protect him. Take him off into the wilderness and protect him for a time. God protected that. And in one last failed swoop, Satan thought that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he had succeeded when Judas betrayed the Lord and handed him over to be crucified. But the thing is, is that Satan overplayed his hand because the cross was actually Satan's defeat. Because as it says in, Romans, or in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, they overcame him by what, church? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony of Jesus Christ. That it was Satan's desire to devour Jesus, but he couldn't devour him. No, 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 no. You see, Satan bit Jesus and we got hurt. But when Satan bites Jesus, or Satan bit us and we got hurt. But when Satan bites Jesus, he gets hurt. <laughs> and then the cross set up Christ's resounding victory. Because three days after they took Jesus off that cross that was stained by the blood of the lamb, what happened? Jesus came roaring out of the tomb as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of the son of David and Jesse. And he, he defeated the grave. He defeated Satan. He made eternal life available to anyone who would believe and carry with them the testimony of Christ for all of eternity. Church, whatever Satan tries to do to Jesus fails. It will always fail. It always has failed. And if we are with him, he will fail with us. What does it say? Now here's, oh my gosh, it keeps going. Look at this. What does it say about the lifespan of the dragon? This is beautiful. Look at verse number 12 of Revelation 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury. Oh, he's mad. He's got power. His kingdom is real, church. Be aware of that. But look, because why? He knows his time is short. He's like a kid boxed in time out who's not getting his way, so he's throwing a temper tantrum with all his fury. And he's like, I'm going to show you, God. I'm going to drag as many people as I can with me to hell. But you know what God says? No, I'm going to give everyone an equal opportunity. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. And if they'll look at the son, they'll find life. So you go on and you rage, but your time is short. And there's going to be a day when my kingdom reigns forever and rules and reigns forever. in church, our motivation from this needs to be, we need to be making sure that we tell everybody to look at the son, to look at Jesus, to look at the king, to follow the king. Because that's the way we defeat the kingdom of Satan. Amen. He knows his time is short. So what's that mean for us? If Satan's time is short, that means that he can only do to the church is only temporary. The, the, the things that we, the, the suffering that we endure, the pain that we endure, the affliction, the temptation, all that, it's only temporary, church. The fury and the suffering may wage, but there is coming a day 
When no heartache will come, no more tears will be in the eyes, no more clouds will be in the sky. And the rest of the story, church, the kingdom of God wins, and we win in Christ. If you read the rest of the story, we win. Not only we win, but we have won. We've already won in him today. And don't miss the power of that phrase, verse number 12 again. He knows that his time is short. You know what that tells me? (laughs) It tells me that Satan's read the story too. He knows he's lost. He knows it. And understand, I say this today knowing that there is a real kingdom of evil. And I know that when you out Satan like we're doing today, he's going to come. But I rest in the blood of Jesus Christ and the word of his testimony. Church, we do not have to fear what we already have victory over in Christ. He knows this story. He knows his time is short because he's read the story and he knows he's lost. As we close out this morning, I want to kind of tie this up. How many of you have been watching the World Cup? Yeah, a couple of us, right? Sorry about Portugal, by the way. Very sorry. Um, yeah, I know. It's tough. There is still a God, remember? All right. Yeah, we, in America, we're not huge on soccer and stuff. And I've watched a few of the games and everything. But soccer, here's one of the reasons that I have a problem with soccer. I just can't get excited about a 0-0 tie. I don't know why people get excited about 90 minutes where people don't do anything. Nothing gets accomplished and we're thrilled to death about it. Right? But here's what I noticed is watching soccer. There were some matches that they were playing uh, earlier on, and I know this is the way soccer goes, is that, you know, the, the way they score things, they don't score things exactly the same way. But in soccer, and in basketball, what you want to do is you want to score as many points as you can, right? In soccer, you still want to do that too, but it's a little bit different. Once you, if you're trying to move on in a tournament, what you want to do, as long as you get the points you need, that's all you do. You get what you need. And, you do, and the rest of it is you just try to hold the other team from getting a point. So you go on defensive mode. And in soccer, there's no like shot clock. There's no, you got to get it past midcourt before 10 seconds. So what do most of the teams that have already won basically do? They just sit around and kick the ball around with each other and play keep away from the other team. Why? Because they know they've won. Their object is not to go on the offensive all the time. Their object is not, they don't have to scramble around to try to win. No, that's what the other team does. The other team is they get desperate. What do they do? They're going to pull their goalie so they can have an extra guy to hopefully so they can, they can score. Church, this is a picture of where we are. When Jesus died on the cross, he scored the goal, man. He, the victory is already secure. All we're doing is playing keep away until the final buzzer. Victory is secure, man. And Satan can do whatever he wants to. He can rail and he can rage and he can go all over the place. He can, get, he can convince people to make Christianity illegal in our country. He can do all these things. And while those things become difficult for us, it doesn't mean he's won. It doesn't mean he's won. And it doesn't mean that we don't, we don't try to keep that from happening. We still keep trying to play keep away. But it doesn't destroy God. It doesn't make God any less powerful. It doesn't make this book any less true. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Whether he's a baby in a manger, or whether he's a conquering king sitting on his throne in heaven. He's the same power. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there's two questions I want to ask you this morning. As we deal with these forces that we don't oftentimes see, but we know are real. Can you say, honestly say that you've conquered the dragon? The Bible tells us how to do that. We conquer the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sin. Just like that old song says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Has your sin been washed away? 
Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you come to Him to have your sins cleansed? That's the only way we defeat the dragon. Because the Bible says the dragon is the accuser of the brethren. Well, all he can do is accuse. Because we already stand pardoned and forgiven in him. And the second question is, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, if you have the testimony in Christ, are you remaining faithful and engaged in the battle as we move towards our moment of victory? See, Satan rages and he is still going to try to deceive those who have not come to the blood of Christ. And we need to tell others that there is the, that is the only place they can find forgiveness. That is the only place they can find victory. Folks, we are not playing games here. We are not just sitting around talking about philosophy. We're talking about real life and death and eternal life and death. So this Christmas season, we're going to come in, in contact with folks that we don't see all the time, folks who may not know Christ. Let this be our challenge, that the dragon is sitting there waiting to devour, but we hold the key in the blood of Jesus Christ, and God forbid we would ever stay silent about the key. God forbid we would never show the key. God forbid that we would never tell people how they could find that in Christ. So as we bow our heads this morning. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.